Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Welcome back to Bark's Remarks. I'm Mark Severino, a grown man who loves duck comics, um, who loves to talk about the adventure-length stories of Carl Barks, and who loves to welcome back returning guests. I've got I've got a returning guest that is here and eager to talk about the story we're covering for this episode when we get to cover the cave of Alibaba. Um, I'm I'm pretty confident that he's not a hallucination. So welcome back to Patrick Block. Hi there folks. It's good to be back. Most of you know I've drawn uh, Disney ducks for something over 30 years, and I still enjoy them just as much as uh, when I first started. Yeah, it's uh, it's always a thrill to get to have you on, Patrick. You are, um, you're, you're one of the great duck artists. I mean, it has to be said, you are uh, someone who obviously took a lot of inspiration from Carl Barks and, and got to, and had the chance to meet with him. So it's, it's great to get your insights. Yeah, my whole approach approach with the duck stuff has always been that I'm sort of trying to recapture those ducks that I read like in the 50s, the, the 50s comics mostly. Like, right. Just, yeah. I mean, that's familiar to me. That's revisiting. Uh, it. Yeah. I'm, I, I know a lot about revisiting this podcast <laughs> series. So Patrick, you know, I, I said you're excited too. Is is this a story that animates you? Or are you drawn to this one? I am. I uh, This is one of the few comics. My grandmother started buying them for me almost just after I was born. You know, basically I was just a baby. And she was reading the comics. And this has a date of 1962. I was born in 58. So I was very tiny still. And I still have this comic in a coverless version. It's like with the original comic, somehow it survived. So I finally remember you know, reading, looking at this before I could read, reading it over and over and over again until it was coverless. And it, it happens to be like uh, of the type of Bark story that I like the most, which is one that has a bit of science mixed with fantasy. You know, it, it, start, it has just, just enough science in it. The beginning when they're looking at the city, lost city and stuff that I feel it always felt to me like that gives that sort of grounding of realism behind the story. And then he goes off you know, on another tangent. But I enjoy that type of story the most. Yeah, this one has a, a really, to me, this one is really notable for like its its tone. You know, it's mm-hmm. really leaning hard into the mysteriousness. Um, yes. it, it really wants you to kind of doubt yourself you know i think there's mm-hmm. kind of this healthy undertone of skepticism in this one of, of not trusting your own eyes and ears yeah it has a little bit of uh, indiana jones you can feel indiana jones pulling from this type of story the business of uh, scrooge saying you can only believe half of what you see kind of thing that whole that whole business it feels like indy and there's even an archaeologist in it so that's cool yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so I, I'm excited to talk about this one with you. I remember I remember this one pretty well. You know what's interesting? There was this run of kind of late 60s adventures that when I was in my like hardcore reading phase for these, I really remember reading the, the Barks adventures that like Gladstone Publishing reprinted and that they featured on the cover, right? But for whatever reason, some of them wouldn't get like cover feature placement. And 
for example, this one, um, I first experienced it in uh, as like a backup story in one of their DuckTales comics, which had a really great William Van Horn. Um, actually really liked the Van Horn DuckTales stories a lot. But but this one was kind of buried in the back there. So I, like it was hard to remember. It didn't have a cover to go with it, you know? Right. So like I, I would read it from time to time, but I, I never really remembered where it was. So I, it's mm-hmm. not one that I ever like sought out. Um, and as a consequence, I remembered this one a little bit less well than some of those. Um, but but that's almost like design because this one itself feels, I, I think the tone, it, it almost wants itself to be forgettable. You know, like I think part of that's the length of the story. You know, it's shorter than most of the, it's longer than a 10 pager, but it's shorter than a lot of the longer adventure stories. So it's got that in between kind of, it's a, it's a hard length to write a story yeah. like 16 pages because it's not quite enough meat on it. You know, you can't, you can't, you can only, that's why it probably it starts like they're already there when it starts because Parks otherwise wouldn't have had the room to include all the ideas that he had for it. And he is right. a little bit, I think he's a little bit uh, forced into it. Like uh, it could have been longer, you know, probably if he, if they had told him, okay, you can have any length for this you want, he might've gone a little bit longer, a couple more pages. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Cause this is the length that he's kind of forced into around this time. Um, You know, he he is. For the most part, he was always forced into a particular length, but it just was shorter in this particular. Yeah. He never was able to say, I want any, whatever page length I want. It's something he had to work in. That's one of the challenges with being a, a comic artist is you have specific page numbers to work with and they're usually written pretty much in stone so right it makes it makes it challenging and it's like always a, i always think it's a great uh, great accomplishment on his part that he was able to you know pull off such great stories and specific page lengths yeah it's true it's it's a good point right because like at the beginning of his career he had i i always think of it as he had the luxury of doing all these 32 page epics um but, you know, maybe that's not a luxury if they're saying, all right, we need this one to be this length because you you really have to, maybe you have to pad it out. I, I didn't sense that any of those 32 pagers were padded out, though. So my perception is that he probably felt more comfortable with the 24 to 32 page. I think it is easier to go longer. You know, if you have more room and, you know, you can spread your wings and you can do right. it. Or it gets tough. 16 for an adventure is tough. How about yourself? You know, when when you were doing stories, um, did you ever feel? Did did you get these assignments where it was specified yes, to you? Always, yeah, yep. And and you'll find you can find having done it, you can always tell. Like as an artist, you can go back and you can read Carl's stories, and you can tell where his seams are at. You can tell exactly where he said, you know, he got he would give so much time to each page and he wanted them to work perfectly together. And there's always a point where if it's a shorter story where he, you can tell where he said, oh, oh heck, I don't have any more room here. And this particular point of the story is where it's going to have to be broken up and shortened somewhat. You know, you can feel that in the story once you've done them. I don't know if you can do it just as a reader, but having had to do that, you know, being forced into the position where you're, where you're given, you're given 16 pages and you want 18 pages and you don't have it. We have to make those decisions. And usually it shows up like in a specific spot in the story. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you that as a, as a, just an enthusiastic reader, reader, it's not something that I ever would have thought of beforehand, but right. as like an obsessive podcaster, who's really <laughs> doing a deep dive into these stories, yeah. I notice it all the time. I'm like, wow, it's, yeah. isn't it interesting here that we're like, you know, eight pages into this 
16 page story and we've barely even left and it feels like he had so much to say and he's going to really um, accelerate the story at the end here you know uh-huh, yeah i always uh, would compose on the um index cards each index card turned sideways was a half page and that would be like the way i would pace a story you know you rough it out really roughly and see where where you've got how much room you've got and it would, that would be the and at that stage is where you make the cuts in your at least i would, would make, make the trimmings and things like that or or if you made needed to longer come up with an extra gag it's easier right. to add than it is to take away Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So so for your own part, it sounds like you were enough of a planner that you probably never encountered like a moment where you had a mismatch, a, a big mismatch between what you wanted to do and the space you were allotted. No, we there's been lots of times when I we get we get stuck like uh, uh, in a story like our third story, the, the Secret of the Dragon's Den, if you've read my stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, got a lot going on. In it. Ron Fernandez wrote that one and he, you know, he had it in mind. He wanted to this amount of material in it and we had a deadline with john clark gladstone and we had to make it and and you know the story had been written like long before we broke into gladstone we had it i think we had it set for like 32 pages or some ridiculous over long thing and we ended up we had 26 is what he wanted to begin with and then he extended it for us to 28 and then we were really stuck and and, uh it was a towards the end of the story almost three quarters of the way through the story there was a point in the story where we just had to had the condensed panels down and we had to like start combining actions you know and it's it's hard when you have like somebody's going to smack somebody in the head and they're going to fall over and you have to swing it and knock them over at the same time in one panel that's the kind of kind of things you have to do when you're like condensing things down and trying desperately we were desperate because i remember that moment really well we were like almost crying we were so desperate to chop it up <laughs> Well, that's that's really interesting to hear because, yeah, I I can imagine on a static comic book panel how hard it just doesn't lend itself to multiple things. Yeah, there's only so much only so much condensing you can do until it becomes becomes uh, obvious that right. you're doing it, you know. You know, and if and if I'm like editing a podcast, for example, on an audio <laughs> medium, you there's editing tricks you can yeah. do to convince th- can condense things in video and like a movie editor can uh, reduce the length of a scene if needed right but you you can't like all you can do is take out panels i guess or redraw Try more action in, in two panels and tell it in one that kind of thing. it's a difficult thing to do in this particular story i think towards the end you can tell exactly what it was that carl says i wish i had more time more page and usually he throws a half page or a bigger page like at the climax a lot of the time the climax of the story though will be a big panorama thing where something exciting is going on in this story maybe the rocks fighting the rocks there could have easily been a larger panel with sweeping vista of them on the kids on the rocks back with you know you can see the ground below and it'd be a bigger panel and that that doesn't happen it's because there's no room in the story and you can you can see that area of the story the rest of the story i think the pacing is it's like almost perfect the whole story except for like one little area i think you know he's taking his time and he's like really relaxed through almost like three quarters of the story and at the end it's sort of it becomes more the ending becomes more pushed rushed and it's not the fault that he couldn't do it it's just that he didn't have the room yeah yeah you know i I, we'll, we'll talk about the pacing, and I'm definitely uh, interested to hear where you think the seams might show as we cover the, the narrative action. A C- couple of markers for me, what interests me before we get into this one. I, you know, I, I mentioned that sense of like mysticism and um, sort of like 
self-doubt that permeates this one. I, I, de I definitely think that's the thing that stands out the most about it. Um, the other thing for me is like the, the you mentioned them, right? The, the legendary, the mythical creatures, the rocks. Um, that's that's a really cool element that I really like. Patrick, do you, do you mind telling us? Uh, I'm sure most people know what the heck a rock is, especially if they've read this story. We're talking about the word R-O-C. What do you know about a rock? Oh, I, I you know, it's like a, a legendary kind of a legendary creature from uh, from the Middle East kind of kind of era. And uh, it's a big giant bird that would swoop down and people would blame missing sheep and goats and camels who probably on on rocks, just sweeping them away kind of thing. Right. So very yeah. simple. That's that's exactly right. A giant legendary bird. Do you have any other favorite pop culture depictions of a rock? Hmm. I don't know if any appeared in like uh, any of the movies, like the Sinbad movies, like uh, from like the fifties or not, like Harry Hal. What's his name? Harry. Yeah, yeah. Halhausen. Harry. Harryhausen. Ray. You're yeah, talking about yeah. Ray Harryhausen. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was like such a fantastic. I don't remember him ever doing the rock, but boy, it sure seems like he should have done one. So I will tell you, I, I'm if I'm grinning a bit, it's because this is like one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. Um, in, in the first Sinbad movie that Harryhausen did, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, there Seventh is Sinbad, yeah. a, a very cool sequence with both yeah. a, a baby rock and an adult rock in, in the legendary. Well, I've seen that before, but it's been a long time. His, his work is always tremendous. Well, yeah. I, I would suggest revisiting that oh, first of the three Sinbad movies yeah, is to me the only is. one that really holds up really well. Um, uh -huh. But but in that one, The Rock is two-headed for whatever reason. Yeah, okay. So that's growing me about it. Yeah. You, you know, it's interesting that it's, it's not <laughs> one of those creatures. I'd say it's not one of those creatures that has like a really big pop culture footprint. So that that makes this really appealing. Um see what else we've got that moment with kind of the i'm definitely interested in dwelling a little bit on those performers right you yes. know the... yeah i wonder about this story you know carl typically would read the national geographics or see something on tv and it would inspire him to do a story and i wonder if it's the science end of things or the fantasy mythological things in this story that brought him to the story because it seems to me that the city at the beginning of the story the buried city with levels like a layer cake kind of a thing is really strong in the early part of the story. Like maybe he read about you know, the uh, people of, of uh, uh, Persia building cities on top of cities as they crumbled, kind of thing, and that yeah. led to the story. Or is it is it the Sinbad, you know, with the uh, uh, open sesame kind of uh, kind of cave and, and, the, and the rocks themselves? That he felt like drawing monster big rocks. But it's a good question because you don't know which which way he went first. Is one of those two things drew him into it? Yeah, and and I suspect that your your supposition about the National Geographic's is right. This yeah. just feels very, very Carl Barks, right? Yeah. yeah, like the idea that maybe he was reading a Nat Geo that talked yeah. about this is a it's a very enchanting idea, right? Like lots. This is one of those moments in the comic where there's something very very truthful, as you say, yeah. it has kind of a factual scientific basis. Sure. The idea that cities are built on the remains of themselves yeah and i'll tell you just before we were logging on i i was just reading a little bit about <laughs> this idea and kind of an interesting discussion of how this kind of thing just just could happen all the time over the centuries if if a disaster happened um, and a city was located in like a prime trading route it made much more sense for people to kind of just uh bury over everything and start sure. anew so and, you know, it's true all over the world too. You know, everywhere, you know, every city probably 
every major city on earth probably has underneath it. Smaller, you know, like a prehistoric city because of the fact that they're near water or they're on the coast, whatever. You know, it's just a natural thing with human beings. That's how, that's how cities go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's even a few, um, uh, you know, American versions along the Mississippi sure, River. Sure. So let's uh, let's get in a little bit of the background of the publication really quickly before we go on to the yep. narrative. Um, this story, you know, you mentioned that it was in early 62, but it, it, it has a cover date, at least, of December 1961, and it appeared in Uncle Scrooge number 37. You mentioned it's on the shorter end for one of his adventure stories. It's clocking in at just 16 pages. Um, I check in on Index how widely published these are. This one came out in 20 countries, in 102 publications overall, and seven times in the U.S. Um, probably a little bit less than average for a, a Barks adventure. I noticed, Patrick, that um, up until its recent you know, reprint in the fan graphics that for whatever reason used it as like the title story for the the volume uh, 28, that it had been um, like 25 years since its last publication in the U.S. So this one feels like kind of uh, a less known. Let's see. Yeah, I think that's that's about, there's not a lot, uh, not a lot of background relating to this one. Before, oh, I don't want to forget, I do love to pander to the international listeners. Patrick, you know better than I do, in fact, where the real energy in the Duck Comics fandom is located these days and has been for, for quite some time. Where where would that be? Have to be Scandinavia. Yeah, it, it really would. So I went ahead and looked at some of the titles from around the world. Um, from And I focused just for, for this one, I focused on that one on that region and, and on a couple of titles that struck me as a little bit interesting. So, um, and then you, you, uh, you declined to read any of them, which I yeah. totally understand. <laughs> so I am going to mention here um, that in Danish uh, and, and I'll, I'll just pay attention to for why I picked these two um, Danish. This one was called Drummen om Alibaba's Hula which translates to the dream of Alibaba's cave. And in Finnish, it's a, it's a question. It's unta vai tota, dream or reality. So both of those um, titles annoy me a little bit, right? Do you, do you have any thoughts on those? We, we've got dream of Alibaba's cave and dream or reality. It gives away a little too much. Yeah, exactly. It bothers me when it's a little bit, a little bit on the nose, right? Like that actually sounded really poetic to me, the dream of Alibaba's cave. Um, but yeah, you know, it's this, this is really supposed to be something that, that we don't dwell on until the very end. So, right. um, so yeah, I, I, I like the sound of them, but uh, I don't like it when it's given away. Yeah, and Carl um, does a pretty good job of disguising the whole, the whole thing. I thought. Yeah. yeah, he definitely does. It'll be interesting as these things are reprinted to see sometimes where cover artists will ignore um, yeah. what he's tried to do and kind of, you yeah. know, keep the ending in the end. But that happens a lot. It really does. I, I get it. Comic book cover artists, no doubt, are looking for like a really punchy image yes. to, to refer exactly. to. So, all right. So we're going to do this. We're going to, um, we're going to talk about the narrative here. And um, this is, this is pretty interesting, Patrick. So as mm -hmm. you noted, 
this one starts out kind of in the middle of a journey, right? Mm -hmm. And it's unrelated to like a treasure hunt. This is this is going to be a story that features a very incidental treasure hunt. Scrooge, Donald, the nephews are touring his faraway pipelines. Um, it is cited to be in the quote, one the foothills of one-time Persia. It's important that he calls it one-time Persia instead of Iran, right? Mm -hmm. um, although was Iran... When, when did they when did the country get its name Iran it's a good question if only I could google it really people, really people from the region still refer to it as Persia like uh, yeah exactly so Iran um Iran's been named as such for like almost 30 years when barks wrote this but of course he's referencing it as one time Persia because it, we want to evoke the past in this story yes. and so um they're they're talking essentially about the desolation of the climate that they're in you know the nephews yes. are are commenting on how mm. bleak it is and scrooge is very casually talking about what persia used to be like how it used to support a great civilization um and i i really like donald's uh you know the panel too the little the little bit of dialogue um, in mm -hmm. that. Patrick, do you mind reading that bit of dialogue? Sure. You've read about this land in the tales of the Arabian Nights, kids. It was Plentyville with milk and honey overtones, which is really cute. <laughs> it is really cute. It's a neat bit of writing. It's meant to draw in kind of what the reader already knows. I, I like the casual feel you know, through this whole section. You know, the fact that he's given this information, but it's less, just like in passing and it's like grounded in reality. You know, that really helps the story later on. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I That's exactly kind of my thought. Um, and just, you know, calling it Plentyville, that's the lingo yeah. of the day, really. Uh -huh. and, and, and there we've got that reference, too, where Scrooge calls it a land of mystery, boys. Right away, he's going to set up that it's a place in which you should never believe more than half of what you see and still less uh, and still less of what you hear. And um, he points out a hillside that has that concept we were talking about. He says, for instance, that tall hill looks like a hill, but don't you believe it? It's a deserted city. That's right. Um, and, and it's pretty cool. They, they go to examine <laughs> that hill and they do see all this like evidence that it once was exactly what Scrooge said that it was. Yes. Um, and Scrooge talks about how, you know, a, as the city aged, it would be leveled and they would build atop it. I remember, Patrick, uh, reading this as a kid. I, mm -hmm. I think that was the first time I was exposed to this concept, you know, of these civilizations yes. stretching back like that. Um, and I, I, I did find this really enchanting. I, I found it very fascinating as a kid. I read this over and over again, and, and surely it teaches you history without teaching you. You know, it's like really entertaining yeah. what way to learn things. Right, exactly. I think that's right. My only real note is that now, as a, as an adult, it's it's interesting that like the idea that Barks gave me of ancient Persia was because um, because literally in the story in ancient Persia we have a panel that's like this too where they're you know flying over the empty desert and kind of casually referencing it felt like you could throw a stone and find um, an ancient city 
which uh-huh. I, I guess this was kind of the heyday of ancient archaeology, so that's not too far from the truth. But even still, this like hill that Scrooge is just casually identifying really is an incredible archaeological find, you know? But it, but it definitely works for the storytelling. And so the only other thing to note on this page is that they're kind of talking about some of the stories that are famous from this era, though. These are the, the legends that give us our, our like, popular pop culture ideas about um, ancient Persia, ancient Arabia, and so on. Mm-hmm. I, you know, Kate, the Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, um, Sinbad, which, which of course all came from, mostly came from the um, Arabian Nights tales. Yep. And I'm sure you and I grew up, uh, even if we grew up, you know, a couple decades apart, a lot of kids grew up watching adaptations of, of these stories all over the place, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I fondly remember like the Popeye cartoons. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, there's a um, famous one where, yeah, with Sinbad the Sailor. Yeah, An- another another favorite version of, of Sinbad. That definitely of has a rock in it. Yes, yeah, it really <laughs> does. I think it gets, doesn't it get like fricasseed at Turns some point? Turns into a turkey. He's <laughs> yeah. holding it like a, like it's a Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what a what a great cartoon. Um, got to got to be one one of the all time great animated yeah. shorts. So, um, you know, they they kind of walk back to their camp, and Scrooge is kind of continuing to wax about how you know where fairy tales leave off and facts begin has never been clear in Persia. Um, what, what a great line that is because it sums up this whole story. Yeah, Scrooge is unusual. Usually, like poetic uh, and and cynical in this one, right? It's it's, it's yeah. like this cautionary. He's he's kind of a Cassandra throughout this whole yes. uh, this whole tale. But like, I think if you counted up his dialogue, a huge ratio of it would just be him chiding them and cautioning them not to believe their eyes. Yes, um, Patrick, what do you think as they're talking about you know civilizations that disappeared, like props in a magic show? Um, there, the nephews are kind of picturing one of those old cities. What do you think of that one? It's really cute how they're just all flying around, and it's like a kid's version of uh, what a uh, like an Arabic city might be with genies and 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 uh, people riding elephants and girls with uh, fancy dresses on, and just you know, very very uh, like a kid's version of how how it should be. It's a cute yeah. panel. Very, very cute. It is. It's all the greatest hits, right, of, of yeah. uh, pop culture, you know, Thousand and One Nights. And then, you know, one of the nephews is talking about how let's not get over imaginative. He's already imagining that Alibaba and, and the other characters from the Arabian Nights could have lived here. Um, we do get our quick Junior Woodchucks reference where yeah. they <laughs> bark. It's funny when he tosses that in. Yeah, it's it's his uh, it's his kind of appeal to authority. If Barks needs to like make it a little bit more realistic, he's just going to reference. Well, the guidebook says that in fact they could have lived here, and no one knows if they're real people or not. And just before the ducks turn in, they're going to encounter some people. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about those three riders, Patrick? I really love that panel with the riders riding up and their has got playing a tambourine and one's got a little uh, sort of a uh, stringed instrument. And I'll be praised. This troop of acrobats has gone long without an audience. Gladly, we will entertain the O travelers. And it's uh, it's a very friendly and uh, 
beautifully drawn panel. I really love it. I remember this panel like stuck in my mind from this story. It's one of the things that really stuck stuck with me. I remember this a lot too. When I when I took a moment to like recall the story before I actually cracked it open to remember it, this is the part that stood out to me. You know, I could yeah. remember these acrobats and their their weird spinning um, and how it felt, even though it doesn't necessarily look kind of look too ominous i think bark mm-hmm. successfully sets it up as there there is this mm-hmm. kind of ominous foreboding uh-huh. yeah well you, you think they're going to be what you're going to you kind of think that you're going to be they're going to be thieves and they're going to rob them or something like that you don't really suspect they're getting it's actually happening to them at least i think he pulled it off really well i think it's just it was really it's a key moment in the story and bark's did it just right. Yeah, I do too. I think because you you are suspicious of them because of what Scrooge has said, right? Sure. He's been plying the reader to be a little mm-hmm. bit skeptical. So, um, and their performance is pretty over the top, right? It uh, is. What what, it is. what do they do? Well, the first thing they do is they they start doing somersaults and then they spin around in circles and they disappear which immediately Scrooge says, "Watch your wallets don't disappear too." And then the the last one. It has a rope that climbs up in the air and he climbs the rope and he vanishes, disappears too. They're gone. And of course, at that moment is the moment where you're like, huh, and you're like starting to think it's like fantasy and stuff. And then Scrooge brings you back down, sort of back to reality. He says, great show, troopers. We are pleased to give you an offering and throws money on the ground and they reappear. Poof. So all of a sudden it's like more like, well, they're just regular people because they're coming back for the money and it's a trick because it's a show kind of thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a parlor trick. He doesn't really show how it's yeah. done or anything. He's not interested in it. There is that kind of interesting moment where they have like a little almost genie whisk, yeah. you know, yeah. as they reappear, uh-huh. which feels supernatural. But it but does. again, it's it's just a colorful <laughs> detail. So you know, Scrooge is being really cautious about verifying that everything is still intact, He's and the nephews grounded. are right. They're, they're starting to kind of pick up on his savvy. And um, and again, more poetry from Scrooge McDuck. He says, a thousand generations of magicians, jugglers, and genies have plied that caravan route. There's no telling what sort of con man will pop up next. A really romantic notion. Yeah. It is. And it's a great transition because just in that next moment, we get another yeah. greeting, a good evening. Yes. Um, and. And who is this, Patrick? It's just, just like regular guys, dusty sort of archaeologist. I'm Professor Dust Diver of the Royal Archaeological Society. Mind if I stop and chat for a while? And I imagine he has like an English accent, I've always thought. Yeah, I don't think I picked up on that as a kid. But now, of course, I realize, I, I would, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, if he's part of the Royal Academy. So th- I like this, right? All five ducks are just staring at him with the yeah. most suspicious, skeptical look. And Barks has really gone out of his way to code this man as trustworthy, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, con- he just seems like just a regular archaeologist kind of guy. Yeah, and, and it's when I do this, Patrick, I, I've been really interested in how you artists will deliberately code things, right? There's yeah. almost a rule. It gets broken sometimes, but usually... Mm-hmm. If a character is going to betray someone in in a kid's, you know, drawn medium, it almost has to be betrayed by just a little hint of mischief or evil. And it's very rare that someone, you know, will will not. Right. Yes. And and, and this the, this character is coded, quote, he's drawn to be trustworthy. He is. 
And I think that the coolest thing about these two pages is Marks does that on purpose in order to, to allay your suspicions about the uh, spinning uh, spinning guys. The trap. The, you know, this is like, he's so like grounded, like Scrooges, just like with regular stuff. It throws you off from the fact that they're hypnotized at this point. Right. And that's and, what does it. This professor showing up takes your attention away from the acrobat, the way they're looking at him and deciding he's a regular guy. And that's I, that's the secret to this story. That's the secret to why it succeeds. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, because um, there's even a couple of references. Like, Barks literally writes in at some point, I believe, yeah, about really, he warns hypnotizing. You about tricksters and people yeah. robbing you and stuff. Well, just before, before he does yeah, it. It's, it's yeah. really audacious, right? It's he's wonderful. he's he's talking about what's going to happen to the ducks before, yes. um, before it happens. Carl's the old master at this at this point. You know, he's like he knows what he's doing. He's telling stories. So so he is like redirecting in he the is. same like way that his uh-huh. characters are redirecting. He's, he's like a magician here. Carl is. He's doing the tricking. Oh, the the part that I'm I'm noticing now that that where he's really on the nose is in. Um, Professor Dusty Bone's first full page where he says, the menaces I fear are the wandering magicians yeah. and soothsayers. You never yeah. know when one will turn out to be a hypnotist or worse. Um, tremendous. But, but as you say, the, the man himself is, he's like not a remarkable character, but he's drawn with um, enough detail and, and kind of, he's, he's very interesting to you look at. You believe in him. You believe in yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. So the reader really does focus. And I, yeah, this particular page, this page where the professor shows up, I really love this page. Like you could use it as a teaching tool of how to lay out pages. And the reason for that is, is because it's got all these wonderful things that you want in a page to keep things interesting. You know, most people, when they draw a comic book, it's like a bunch of medium shot. Maybe you occasionally get a portrait in there, but but usually it's like a mix. You know, it's like not really, it's like all, like a lot of comic artists, they do everything from the same perspective. It's like medium shot, medium shot, medium shot, close up, medium shot. And this, you know, you've got, when he needs to, Carl moves in close into the kids, and he's like, I begin to see what Uncle Scrooge means about Persia. And it's like, it's just the two of them. It's very simple. And then he pulls way back in the next panel. A thousand generations of that important, that important line from Scrooge. And you see this distant, super distant shot of him, way, way back. And combined with the medium shots, like such an interesting page. You've got two panels that have these silhouettes with the donkeys in the background and the one before with the guys and the camels going away. And like, you know, if I was going to own a page from this story, this is the page I want, even though there's these exciting pages with rocks and all kinds of excitement going on. But this is a beautiful, classic, perfectly designed page to, to just keep the reader's attention and make it interesting. Again, I think you're exactly right. This page is beautiful. <laughs> Um, the character art's really great too. I love the expression on the nephews, uh, and and then we we get that great view of the the Just city itself that so was referenced. So wonderfully done. Yeah, it, it really is great. There, there's all these things that tie in different elements of the story just on that far back panel. You know, there's the little oil pipeline that reminds us about why the ducks are here in the first place. There's the um, the lost city on the mountain. There's their campsite. Yep. It turns out this is going to be where the whole story takes place, of course. Yep. Um, yeah, really good stuff. So the next page, I think, is really impressive, too, because mm-hmm. Professor Dust Diver is, is basically going about, you know, talking up this yeah. archaeological find. I, I mentioned that he talks about how you know he, he worries about encountering a hypnotist, but but then we're immediately like drawn to the clay tablets 
that he has that are uh, an amazing discovery that he's been able to translate, which presents um, Alibaba and the other kind of legends of the Arabian Nights as factual, like news items. Right. I, the, what the I, professor's so tired, you know? Yeah. You look at him, he's like so tired in every panel. He's like all worn out and dusty and can just feel he's older and he's just so disarming. Yeah, but except by the end of the page, he's kind of perked up and you sense that he's mm -hmm. kind of feeding off the duck's enthusiasm, you know, yes. as they start to buy into these tales. Patrick, I, I, there's something that I really like about this page, right? <laughs> it's it's So this page is just an exposition dump, right? It's setting up um, how he, we're going to get the ducks into the next phase of the story and buy into what Professor Dust Diver is saying. I'm just looking at how Barks makes it really interesting by like turning his camera, quote, all the way around the professor. We get like an angle of him, uh, a view of him from every angle that at least that you can yeah. still see his eyes in. Mm -hmm. um, I, just, I really like that. So the next page, which is also, it's it's a neat one, right? Because we get funny. a little imagination. Donald. Yeah, the Donald is really funny. It's cute. Yeah, he, he's so he's imagining treasure. Right. We get we get him imagining a, a cave of treasure, right? Um, Alibaba's cave. And and every I think I think everyone knows the little open sesame bit, right? We can see yeah. that cave door swinging open. Um, we see one of the nephews imagining <laughs> he introduces the idea of the giant rocks that were stealing sheep and horses and carrying them at night to their mountain rookeries, supposing they were as big as airplanes. And and Scrooge is not sold yet, right? He's the only one who's still skeptical. So he chides them all to go to sleep. And we get to see him being very sensible the next morning. What, what do we yes. see here? He immediately checks to see if there's been any hocus pocus during the night. And he notices that one of the donkeys is gone. He immediately asks where the archaeologist is because no trust in Scrooge. But the archaeologist in the last panel here, he's still here. It's like a nice, nice touch that uh, at the end of the panel, he's, he's still in camp when you, you know, half expect him to have left with the donkey. Yeah, I like that moment a lot. It, it mm -hmm. definitely is a little standout moment where he just kind of cavalierly says here, you know, yeah. like I'm still here. It wasn't me. So, you know, they they have this moment now where they realize something's going on. Um, they're going to have to set off and look for their donkey. They're following the tracks. And I like this a lot, right? It, mm -hmm. It's it's a yes. great it's a great comic book moment. They see the it tracks, is. they see the tracks disappear, and they see the marks of what appear to be a giant bird's wing. There was another moment of the of the story that I really remember as a kid. The long shot of them looking, running up to the wings, the wing imprints in the sand. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that I love these comics for, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're not showing. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of oh, the lost crown of Genghis Khan, right? Mm -hmm. Where the marks that the abominable snow yeah. monster leaves in the snow are like more frightening per se than like the ultimate reveal of the monster it leaves himself. You, leaves you to your imagination. Right, yeah. right. Although I, I will say that I, I end up liking um, how the rocks are represented way more than the abominable snow monster. <laughs> yeah. um, and then they make another discovery, right? This this one's a little less, a little more on the nose. Yeah. Uh, they they see a giant feather 
Yes, it's really uh, big. Uh, I remember that feather pretty well too, because yeah, that's just Scrooge's gag at the end of the page is cute. I say, yeah, what does he say? That feather. I say you could knock me down with a feather. That feather, for instance, he's like kind of quivering a little bit. I, I'm always interested to uh, talk about translations of these. That's a fun. That's a little idiom in English that um, it's understandable, but I, I wonder yeah. if it it doesn't exist probably in other languages. Yeah, but it still would make sense, like. Exactly. Just like that. Right. So, so at this point, everyone is convinced, you know, this is good evidence. It's a giant feather for yeah, Pete's sake. It's pretty simple. Um, and, and so now Scrooge is also excited and they want to go off and look for uh, Alibaba's treasure. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and he, this is a little bit of a jump. I think Patrick yeah. is, is, yeah. is this one of those moments where you think maybe there were a couple of seams that were taped over no, by chance? Not yet. All right. All right. So, so I do feel like this is a little abrupt here. Yeah, I'll take I'll, into it as easily as they do. You mean? Yeah. That they bump into it so easily. Right. Exactly. So Scrooge yeah. points out that Alibaba was a woodcutter. And, and so he had to be where there were forests and any point the archaeologist points out those mountains in the distance and Scrooge says that's a good enough clue for us let's go yeah. so so that's pretty silly it's it's a, a big logical leap but I guess that Barks does have the excuse that you know if if we're in a bit of an altered state spoiler right we've we've alluded to the fact that there's yes. going to be kind of a uh a doodle -doo 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 yeah. reveal at the end um, that we've had had a hypnot an encounter with some hypnotism here. But so yes. if we're in an altered state, this is like that. Ah, that's fine. So you know they eventually do arrive in those mountains where it's just full of crevices and and they do giant find an, yeah they find another giant bird feather. So so at least they seem to be on the right track. Uh, this this Patrick is almost certainly where I learned the vocabulary word molting, you know, for a bird to lose their feathers. Yes. And I really like that bottom panel on this page. I wish it could have been larger where they're just looking at some of the places that, quote, could hide a cave. Right. Yes. Um. So, you know, it, the next sequence is going to be the next sequence is a bit of a cliche, right? It's the open sesame bit. Yeah, this is this reminds me that the, of the sequence with them saying it in English it reminds me of the Lord of the Rings because uh, Tolkien used the same kind of deal with the Dwarvish, I think. First mm -hmm. they try in common, it's supposed to be in Dwarvish or Elvish when they open the door to the Morgan. So it's the yeah, that's game. right. Yeah, and I, and right. I, I know uh, Carl read the Lord of the Rings. He mentions it a couple of times. Pretty cool. Does he? Yes, he does. Right. Yeah, that's it's even a rock. It's even a rock door. And I mean, I can't count. I can't keep track of all the cartoons that have done some <clears throat> variations. Yeah, that's true. It's a pretty calm, common thing. I, I wonder why that was such a popular trope with kids like animation and, and literature. There's something really enchanting about, you know, the idea of magic words, <laughs> I guess. So, yeah, as you say, they get the idea to try hollering open sesame into every um, yes. crevice without any luck. And eventually uh, their their donkey looks up with a start and uh, Donald asks, whoa, Ajax, what are you so skittish about? And we see him snatched by a giant bird. Any any significance, do you think, to the name Ajax? Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah, he's in the Iliad. 
wonder if that's like purposeful. Probably is. I mean, um, you know, the Trojan War obviously <laughs> has someone getting into something well guarded. So anyway, they do. They now they get the chance to follow a rock. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that there's no kind of like in in whatever state they're in, no one dwells on the fact that how could a rock have gone unseen for this long in the age of satellites, right? So they they are able to find the rock over by a funny faced cliff, and uh, they encounter him as the professor immediately realizes, oh, of course, he's saying open sesame in ancient Persian. And and uh, I guess Barks is careful to point out that he's making noises like a parrot to yeah. say that it, it's not actually talking, it's just parroting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you, before we go on to the interior of the yeah. rocks cave, and I, I had fun looking up the etymology of the word rock i'm not going to try yes. to, to do it but it was it was interesting uh what do you think about the like creature design on it there they're, they're like kind of cute really they're not really real scary they're like uh what do they remind me of they look, they're, they're kind of based more like on a vulture or a buzzard than they are anything else yeah i, I thought they looked kind of like buzzards um they mm-hmm. kind of reminded me of the buzzard the like looney tunes buzzard what, what's the one i'm thinking of the one that sings i'm bringing home a baby bumblebee i think <laughs> Yeah. Um because they've got didn't, he didn't want to scare people too much, I think, with this. No, he didn't, <laughs> but there there are a couple of parts where I do find them kind of frightening looking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because he he's gonna have them looking pretty menacing at yeah. some point. So um, you know, maybe he made them look a little comical for that reason. But I, I, I really like their look. Yeah. And I yeah, I cute. like their size. I think that they're uh-huh. they're just monstrously large enough to, yeah, just to big be enough intimidating. to pick up a donkey. All right. So um you know, <laughs> initially there some of the characters are a little bit uh nervous about just charging on in, but Scrooge has an idea. So they kind of collect themselves, follow Scrooge's plan, where they yes. race in. Um, they, you know, the professor says the words, they race in, they grab some feathers and light them like torches to ward mm-hmm. off the rocks. Works surprisingly that, well. That's a, of nice course. Looking, that's a nice looking page, too. It, it really is. Well, and it has to work well, right? Because in, in a dream, um, what your thoughts basically are supposed to, they happen, yeah. right? Right. Uh, yeah. Or, or at least, you know, dreams. I don't know. I don't know. It feels it feels like it should just work because it's because mm-hmm. of what it is. Um, this is we've seen a lot of very cool Barks visualizations of mm-hmm. treasures. Uh, this nice is one. as good a, as good of a treasure cache as as, yeah. as, as I've ever seen. Feather um, burning feathers holding's great. Yeah. Oh yeah, and the shadows that are cast by them are quite nice too. So you know the the ducks are able to save their donkeys. They're going to get them loaded up. I wonder what the other one's name is. Oh yeah, we don't uh, we don't get to know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess Helen. I'm just maybe yeah and and the professor is kind of pondering you know why why would that rock open to a sound mm-hmm. and and he kind of surmises that it's done by um by sound tones like glass being shattered by certain notes now that's interesting that's something i wouldn't have caught without doing this chronologically you know i very recently got to record the episode for the unsafe safe yes. um which is going to be Tangan, Yeek, and Yeekers. Yeah. So this is the second story. They're not 
I don't think they're quite in a row, but they're very, oh no, they are in a row, at least mm -hmm. as far as his, this, that'll be the next adventure length story we talk about. So, mm -hmm. you know, two stories in a row where he's talking about the idea of um, sound shattering glass. Yeah. And uh, I like this moment a lot. They get all loaded mm -hmm. up and they've totally forgotten about the threat that could be waiting for them at the mm -hmm. edge of this treasure cave. Yes. And that's, mm -hmm. Patrick, that's making me flash back to um, well, the minds of King Solomon. They're, they're assuming that the, the, the birds are deeper inside, right? That was what I got from the thing. They don't go towards the door. They go towards the back of the cave. So they think yeah. they're trapped. There. Yeah, that's exactly right. They've gone out some kind of back exit. It just, tricky, it just, I just birds. yeah. Um, I just found it interesting that uh, you know, when they when they're in the Middle East, they're often exiting treasure caves, finding to their surprise that there's danger waiting for them. Yeah, on the next page, they reference that they must have gone out a back door and come around to meet us. And uh, I would have loved to have seen, I think maybe this is the panel I would like to have seen big, the one where the rocks have them surrounded in front of the door. That would make a nice like half page, like a more impressive uh, if it had been big. Yeah, you're right. That's really a bummer, right? Because it's only, it's not even a, it doesn't even go all the way across. It doesn't even span the page. And yeah. uh, just a couple of years ago, before he had the terrible experience in Mythic Mystery um, of with, having yeah, with Thor in, the, in his uh, chariot. Yeah, he had a great, a, a lavish uh, splash panel just totally cut out. So he stopped drawing them, you know, right? What a what a shame, because um, it would have made a cool one. I, I really like the menacing <laughs> expressions on yeah. those rocks yeah. there. And, and the rocks really have the upper hand, right? Before they're able to get back into the cave, they, you know, say the magic words in ancient Persian and seal them out. Shut sesame, of course, this time. And, uh, you know, the professor is unable to open it because now in his, I guess, in his excited. Um, excited state, he can't remember the right pitch. So as you say, it's a little bit scientific, you know. Yeah, yeah it seems it's, to be anyhow. <laughs> it, right. It's it's good enough for comic books. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, we are talking about, you know, concepts like pitch and frequency, even if he's right. not teaching us the very concept in its detail. He's laying the groundwork for, sure, for sure. readers to understand those kinds of concepts. Never mind. Our vibrating is all over for today. So Scrooge's is picked up. That's great. Yeah, that's really funny. And I am all for scenes of characters being picked up by <laughs> giant birds yeah. where you can only see the claw, uh -huh. right? Like there's yes. something really cool, e even though the rocks have been revealed. I like that we can yeah. only Just makes see them. Just makes bigger. So um, the the adults all get snatched. Mm -hmm. We got some nice kind of wish fulfillment for the kids. <laughs> you said you said you were about four when you read this. Maybe not I even been four the first time I looked at it. Yeah, right. Or reading reading it, I would have been you know right aging through it, and ripping the cover off it. <laughs> I said I think the second to the last page is the page where the scene in the story is. It's where where Carl was faced with the even though he didn't use a half page in the page before with the them coming out of the door and seeing the birds, he still is stuck with being short of uh, panels that he would have liked. And I think that if he would have, if he had had his choice, he would have made the panel on the page before larger, like a half page. He would have given us like maybe two more panels on this page, or some, I don't know, maybe two to four, and he would have had uh, had the kids. There would be an explanation panel that of the birds flying away that the kids got had gotten rid of them because it's kind of just assumed 
and you don't actually see what happens to them. You see them get hit in the head. You see the one for the little, you know, they have little things like they're injured somewhere, but you don't see them giving up. They just disappear. So I think that you're missing the resolution of the birds going away. And then on the top of the next page, you have this uncommon thing where you don't have mourning, which is what you should really have the top of the next of the last page. Carl would always end it on a note and then start a new note. You have these two panels of we save some jewels and then this, them going to sleep. And that should be on the page before. Yeah, so you're you, right. You, yeah. I, and I didn't even pick up on this on this reading, but, but you're absolutely right. He almost never, I mean, a sequence is usually intended to close out a page. He was very or, good about that. He was he was a genius about one of the, right. one of the things that he always did. You know, he would try to give you a gag on the bottom of a page and he would try to end the page on an action and then the top of the next page would start a new thing. And that helped you carry you through from page to page and you didn't want to put it down because of that. And it's not a mistake on his part. It's just that he didn't have the room. Yeah, it does feel a little bit compressed because as you it's say, different. well, yeah. and, and before I move on to that, I, I'll say <laughs> that I really, I really do like this, the rock fight. You know, it's like a, yeah. it's a like a dog it's very, fight. It's very frenetic. They're, they're piloting the rocks yeah. by shining flashlights into their yeah. eyes to like you guide know them. guide them it, it's it's really cool and they drop off some of the diamonds the treasure uh, on heads. on their other skulls and you're right how do they get rid of the the last like i can justify easily that the other rocks would have flown away the ones that got beamed by diamonds right. but what about the one that they're piloting i mean i guess he's scared off by all the commotion but still. all you would need is a really you could get away with one panel of them all flying silhouette of them all flying right and it would have been a cool look too i do i do love the cute little picture of the three nephews floating down yeah it's cute as heck it is and it (laughs) looked even though physics don't really work that way it totally looks like it should be possible well they are birds yeah so you know the next page has the ducks very abruptly scrooge is talking about how he saved some of the jewels um they're going to call it a day and camp right there and uh, as you say in the very <laughs> middle of the page middle of the page we transition from night to morning very unbarks like and what do they discover patrick when they wake yeah. up they wake up to find themselves still in the original camp they were at and the donkeys are both there it's a pipeline how did we get yeah. here? How did the get set up again? <laughs> yeah, everything is as it was. And and another queer thing, one of the nephews says, his junior woodchuck's calendar watch says that it's still yesterday. So they've kind of pieced it together. The nephews did that there never was a professor. Our donkeys weren't stolen. We never <laughs> went treasure hunting. And, and they surmise that those acrobats spinning really fast was a sort of hypnosis. That sneaky Uncle Carl did us in. Yeah. Pulled us, tricked us. (laughs) And indeed, Scrooge, you know, who chastised them uh, during the performance to watch your wallet, finds that they took his wallet. um, And he reiterates. He's been hugging a canteen all night thinking it was a jar of diamonds from the cave of Alibaba. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. It's this is a pretty unusual ending, right? It's not it's not I don't think there are many other examples of this kind of like it was all a dream. Um, But this is less of an it was all a dream trope than most artists would do. Right. Yeah. It's not nearly as cliche as it sounds when you talk about it. When you read the story, it like fools you. 
And I like how he included the hypnotizing thing again at the end, them spinning. He has the kid talk about it and he shows you them actually doing it, kind of reminds you where where it happened. Yeah, I think that it was, you know, of that sort of story, if you're going to do a dream, if it was a dream thing, this is the way to go because it works really well. Right, because the dream was from an outside influence. It was all a con job. It's not like the end of the end of the firebug, right? Which right. Barks didn't actually get to end and, and one yeah. of his editors pasted. in there. <laughs> yeah, it was all a dream. It's not that kind of, it was all a dream ending. Yeah, it's yeah, fascinating. Can... Usually when, when people use that, you know, it was all a dream thing. It's because they don't have any story. For this, it's part of the, it, the integral part of the story itself is them getting hypnotized. It's like what happens to them. Yeah, it was, it was planned out that way. And, and that's why I, I think I don't feel, I don't feel cheated when I read this yeah. story, right? Like, yes. wait, what do you mean? The, the adventure was all a dream the last however many pages how many pages of this story didn't really happen most of them it's a 16 pager right 16 yeah and so um basically once we're on page five most of page five pages three pages and one panel yeah so that's really something right it's just the very beginning and the very end uh the vast majority of this story is just completely fabulated. It's totally made up and it, it's neat. That makes this one striking. It makes it very unique compared to most Bark mm -hmm. stories. So I guess for you that that really worked, right? It did. It worked perfectly well. It still does. It worked when I was a kid and it still works for me, for me today. It's so clever. And it's like the cleverness of Carl is what pulled it off. And, and all those little things that happened in those two pages where they get hypnotized and the professor shows up is the meat where it's where he like managed to pull the wool over our eyes yeah i like this one a lot you know i i i wouldn't i'm not gonna say like it definitely works for me as a story um i don't find it like one of his best by any stretch you know, it's from from 62 and there's just not a whole lot of stuff that's great in 60 that era just isn't as good as the stuff from like 51 or 50 or even 49 in that area that's where all the real perfection that every almost every story does and at this point in time he's hit and miss more but this right. is definitely one of the more hits that era yeah i think that's right i think this is at least the the kind thing you can say about it is that it's a good uh well-paced and unique story from this era you know yes um it's, it's really it's a, it's a period where carl you know he had mastered everything about the medium and knew exactly what he's doing and maybe it wasn't like the first time he touched on like a lot of the subjects it wouldn't be the last time either but he was so good at doing it it was like pacing and, and trickery rules the day and it came out nice <laughs> yeah yeah i think so it's interesting too what a it's such a lonely story right like um the ducks are going to only encounter those three performers technically the other individual they encountered didn't really exist the so bit. yeah so it, it makes it the, the idea of a shared dream, too, is really interesting, right? Because that's something that always falls apart if you think about it too carefully. But, but there are so many examples of it in pop culture. It's a very powerful thing, and people are very willing to accept it. I'm only thinking about it just because I am trying to think so critically about these stories and the tropes that they use. Old California shared that, that dream thing, but it was like a drug, was it like... 
they crashed in a car and then they were found by American natives and then American natives did what did they do to them? Yeah, they did. They used some kind of psychedelics. Something. Right. Yeah. And then they all shared the dream. That makes more sense doing it together, that kind of a situation, probably. (laughs) Well, maybe uh maybe that's what the little smoke trail you know, the genie trail, maybe that wisp of smoke yeah. is some... some so you could, you could say that these hypnotists caused it, to, to gave them all the same instruction. You yeah. find the cave of Alibaba, that kind of thing, while they were out. And, and of course, we have the fact that the ducks have been talking it up to each other immediately yeah, before. They almost talked themselves into it before it happened. Right. Now I'm wondering if that little hint of a genie trail is supposed to be our only clue that this is a dream, you know, maybe that's like the moment. He doesn't really do that kind of little aha moment necessarily, but like it it is weird, right? Because that's something that looks like they're ethereal instead of just performers. Anyway, I found this one enjoyable. You obviously think very highly of it, especially for- for... because I was four when I read it. Right. (laughs) No, I- I I definitely- (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I definitely hear that. We, we've all got our nostalgic favorites. We like to check in on, on what the rest of the community thinks of it. Index is a great way to do just that. People can rate the stories. And as of, as of right now, this one's got a 7.5 out of 10, mm-hmm. um, which gives it a 283 out of all like 43,000 stories on Index. Um, so that's that's strong, of course, yeah. compared to many creators. It's it's if you consider Bark's other adventures, <laughs> it would place it in I think the let's see oh yeah r- right at about the like the the top two thirds right mm-hmm. so it's at the it's 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 in the top two thirds of Bark's stories yeah sixty sixth mm-hmm. percentile that seems about mm-hmm. right to me I would say yeah it's very enjoyable um. I definitely, before we wrap it up, I, I do want to call out something that I really love about the story, or at least peripheral to it, is the uh, the oil painting that he did. Right? Mm-hmm. What what do you think of that one? So I'm gonna I'm gonna show you a picture, Patrick, on your your a site you're very familiar with, Disneyana Plus, mm-hmm. because of course you do many commissions. You they yes. they do they present and sell a lot of your own works there. Well, of course. Um, Yes, absolutely. All right. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It has a great silhouette. Yeah, I really it's, like this one. It's a strong piece. You know, yeah. The design is really, really interesting. That very strong shadow that juts out to the right. Yeah, I love the shadow of the rock and with just yeah. one nephew kind of noticing it. This this painting was mm-hmm. repurposed for the opening of the 2017 DuckTales in, in a pretty weird way because they used mm-hmm. like a different kind of creature. I think it was like giant crabs or scorpions or something <laughs> with a pincher, something weird. It, yeah. it is weird because it's very recognizable, you know, like mm-hmm. they, they stylize it exactly like this painting and then yeah. it's a different creature. So I was just like, yeah. what? What's yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful painting. You know, Barks was always great at posing the duck. You know, yeah. Very specific shots and they're really nicely done. there. Yeah. So I really like that one. <coughs> Obviously, yeah, there's not, a, apart from the oil painting and its use in DuckTales, there's not really any follow-ups to this one to speak of. So let's see. I think we got to cover all of my notes. Just taking a. We did a good job. I think I think we did a great job, Patrick. So, um, (laughs) 
Thank you so much for for joining me for this one. I really appreciate it. Um, I know you're a little bit under the weather, so thank you all the more for that. Always a pleasure, and yeah. I enjoyed these a great deal. Excellent. So um, people should definitely check out your work. As I said, can be seen on Disney Anna Plus, or just That's just right. Google Patrick Block, or or check out some of your back issues. Yes. And then join us next time as we get to cover, oh, this will be a fan favorite, right? The Unsafe Safe. Is yep. The Tanganyika next. piece? Tanganyika. Yeah. yeah. We get, we get uh, Tanganyika, Tanganyika Yeekers yes. are uh, making their appearance next time in, in our next so magic pretty, episode. Pretty funny story. Yeah, it is. Definitely one of his daffier, funnier ones. Um, and check us out on online. We're on Facebook, sometimes on Instagram. And um, what do you think, Patrick? Close sesame? Yes, that's a good way to end it. Close sesame. Say it, you have to say it in Persian, though. That's right. <laughs> Close sesame in Persian. Mm-hmm.